Did you know the very first Rolls Royce bought by an Indian Maharaja was the Pearl of the East? It was bought by the Maharaja of Mysore after he saw the car in the Bombay Kolhapur motor trials in 1908. Welcome to the Indian podcast. This is Alicia and today we will be talking about India's fascination with the Rolls Royce which goes back to the days of the Maharajas. Why was India such an important market for Rolls Royce? What kind of specific body styles people in India asked for when they bought a Rolls Royce? Was it ever used as a garbage collection vehicle in India by a maharaja? And why in the post-independent era hardly any Rolls Royce were bought and imported in India? To answer these and many more questions, today I am in conversation with Mr. Gautam Sen. who is a leading automotive consultant and an authority on historic vehicles he has also written several books including a book chronicling the life of a very special rolls 17 ex hi gautam how are you very good thank you alisha good to hear from you again <laughs> likewise well gautam to begin this podcast i believe uh, first we should definitely talk about in what way did rolls royce had a mark deeply implicated in india's automotive history and how and why did it happen why did the maharajas love the rolls royce yeah see rolls royce as you know was a one of the fairly early car manufacturer in the uk and england England was a bit slow in getting into the automobile industry. France and Germany and the US had had a lead over the UK, and um, they were already there in a big way. France was that time um, the turn of the century in the year nineteen hundred. It was the largest car manufacturing nation in the world. US was number two. Germany was a distant third. England was nowhere in the side, but soon after. when you know england uh, they started making cars in the beginning of the just just around the 1900 or so uh, rolls royce started in 1904 and uh, at the beginning they made a range of cars they made uh, so called i would say cheap cars they made sort of a middle level car and they also made a couple of fancier cars but finally the fanciest the most expensive car that they made which was the 40 horsepower was an exceptionally good car and when they made that uh, this start building up a reputation with that car and one of those first cars in 1908 in fact was brought by this rolls royce uh, salesman dealer to india to participate in the bombay kolhapur reliability trials which it won and after that car won that car was picked up by the maharaja of mysore and soon after that more and more rolls royces were brought in at the time of 1911 when there was the delhi darbar when uh, king george uh, was going to be crowned several rolls royces were brought in at that point of time and that became recognized as sort of the most expensive english car and one of the finest of the best of the british cars in fact one of the magazines called it the best car in the world and so all the wealthy indian maharajas and wealthy indians and not just in india in different parts of the world when they wanted to buy the best car in the world they went and bought a rolls royce so that's what helped rolls royce establish itself as the most expensive and the best car in the world at that point of time and because it was english and the rajas and the maharajas were part of the british empire to please the british masters in a sense 
it also made political sense or symbolism was there to buy Rolls Royce. There were other great brands. There was uh, Napier, which is also making cars equally good, if not better, in England. And there were great cars made in France. There was this Delaunay Belleville, and there were other cars in, in France, Clément Bayard, uh, which also some of them did come in. But the point remains is that as far as the Rajas and the Maharajas were concerned, because they were part of the uh, part of the British um, Empire, they saw themselves as subjects of the British, it was important for them to keep the British happy, their, you know, their masters happy. And to that extent, uh, that's the reason why they entertained or they bought more English cars than anything else. And amongst them, Rolls-Royce was seen as the most expensive, the best or the most fancy. And in which case they went ahead and bought Rolls-Royces. The King of England at that point of time and the royal family actually did not favor Rolls-Royce. They were more into Daimlers. And some Daimlers did also come into India. Many of the Indians also did buy Daimler. But the Rolls-Royce was even more expensive, more fancy, and well, they splurged by showing up on Rolls-Royces. All right. Now, Gautam, it is believed that India was Rolls-Royce's biggest market. Is that true? Also, why was India an important market for Rolls-Royce? Is it because the royalty, these Maharajas in India, preferred this car? Also, here, if you could tell us more about, apart from the Maharajas, who else was buying the Rolls-Royce? Uh, well, the thing is that um, India was not Rolls-Royce's biggest market, as many people have been misled into believing or have mentioned that at several points, several times, historians, uh, journalists, writers have written that India was Rolls-Royce's biggest, most uh, single biggest market or the most important market. Um, it wasn't the single biggest market, not by, by any chance, uh, because uh, they sold a lot of cars in the UK itself. The UK itself was a massive market. It's probably its biggest market at that point of time. Uh, America was a hugely important market. In fact, they in fact set up a manufacturing base in America and um, in the US in um, Springfields, Massachusetts. And, um, and they, they, they made the cars there and sold for the North American, South American markets out of Springfield. And um, so America was a very, very important market. Uh, France was a fairly important market and so was continental Europe. India was much, much less important in terms of, uh, I won't say important in terms of numbers was not that important because uh, what one knows from figures um, up to 1940, up to the beginning of the second world war, Rolls-Royce made almost 20,000, not almost, more than 20,000 cars, just a little over 20,000 cars of which less than a thousand, barely uh, 900 or so, came to India. So which means it was barely 5%, and that's a, not a very large uh, number in that way. But in terms of importance, India was very important. Why? Because bulk of the people who bought these cars in India, bulk of them, more than half, I would say two-thirds of the people who bought Rolls-Royce in India, were the Rajas and the Maharajas, the Indian princes, Rajas, Maharajas, the Nawabs, the Nizam of Hyderabad. They're the people who bought Rolls-Royces. And um, when Rolls-Royce sold any of, I mean, whenever they kept selling cars to some princely state, uh, especially an important Raja Maharaja, they always made it a point to send out a press release with the photograph of the car uh, to the media in England and other parts of the world 
and the media, the news, the magazine, the car magazines in, uh, if you see this English magazine called Autocar, every other issue of Autocar, you will find a news item saying that uh, Rolls-Royce sold this, this car, or this, this car was taken delivery by the Maharaj of Gwalior, or by the Maharaj of Pikaner, or something like that. And that was very important for them. These sales to the Maharajas and the Rajas, as much as to the king of Abyssinia or the king of Spain or to the, uh, you know, the, the, the queen of Romania, there were important things for all sources as a marketing statement. And to, to that extent, the Indian Maharajas were a very important market, not necessarily a very large market, not in terms of numbers, but in terms of importance, it was very, very important. And in terms of the market and the people who bought Rolls Royces in India, they were not all bought by Maharajas. At the same time, neither very significant numbers, I would say almost half the people, more than half, well over half, maybe almost two thirds of the people who bought Rolls Royces in India were the Maharajas, the princes, Rajas, Maharajas, Nawabs, the Thakur Sahibs and all that. So they bought almost two thirds of the Rolls Royces bought and sold in India. Remaining were bought by other wealthy Indians and the English. A lot of the English, you know, the rich English, the governors, the senior people who were here, they also ordered Rolls Royces. So the English themselves bought quite a few Rolls Royces in India, the English working here. And um, so did some of the wealthy barristers and, uh, you know, doctors and uh, uh, Indian civil servants who were also came from wealthy stock or the merchant classes, the Marwari families, etc. They also bought Rolls-Royces. Well, since you mentioned the Marwaris, I actually have a very interesting question, which I will ask you later. But before that, I have another question for you. And that is that, Gautam, we know that in the pre-war period, top-end cars were customized. Now, when we talk about the Rolls-Royce, what were the specific body styles that people in India asked for when they uh, purchased a Rolls-Royce? Well, it's not just Rolls-Royces. In fact, um, all uh, fancier cars, which were not mass-produced, you know, cars by Daimler, by Mercedes-Benz, some of them also, in cases of cars from uh, France, like Hispano, Suiza, and all of them, the manufacturers actually made the chassis and the mechanicals. So as a customer, you had to buy the chassis and mechanicals, and then you could go to a coach builder of your choice and get the body made to your specifications. Or sometimes the manufacturer supplied the chassis and the mechanicals to a coach builder. The coach builder might have bought it from the manufacturer, put a body on it, and then they sold it to a customer. So in that case, there were two kinds. I mean, there were these people who went to showrooms in London and went and bought something which was already bodied. Or they decided, okay, we have the time and we want to want the car done to our, let's say, specification requirements. And then in which case they ordered the body style from the coach builders. Now, many of the Maharajas in um, India had their favorite coach builders. They dealt with certain coach builders more than the others. And um, with those coach builders, they had great relationship and they could ask for specific body styles. Amongst the body styles, which were most popular, of course, in the time, especially in the 20s, most of the cars that the princely India ordered were tourers. So there were these four-door convertibles. They were open on the top. They normally had a soft top cover and they had these four doors with or without windows. In fact, most of them were without windows or so. 
Now, why did they do that is obviously because India is very hot, as you know. Ventilation is very important. People um, needed to be in an open where, you know, when they were driving, there was a strong breeze blowing or a wind blowing and by which they could be kept cool. There was no air conditioning at that point of time. So in that era, in the, in the 20s, you had a lot of the tourer bodies. Now, there again, the specificity was that many of these cars had bodies which were, which Indians liked very much. They liked bright cars, you know, unlike the Europeans who preferred very relatively more sober cars, Indians like bright cars. And they found that it was possible to ask for uh, when these coach builders made bodies in aluminium, before they painted the aluminium, if you left the aluminium as it was in bare metal and polished it, you had this very shiny silver look about them. So a whole bunch of Indian um, Rajas and Maharajas ordered the bodies to be what you call nickel plated or just left bare aluminium nickel plated as they call it. That became quite a trend. And so there were a whole lot of these Rolls Royces that were um, that came in the 1920s, which had this completely silver look about them, you know, like almost like chrome. And in fact, the famous one is the silver phantom of Hyderabad, uh, where one of the, not the Nizam, but one of his ministers, in fact, his prime minister, who was one of the Nababs, he ordered his Rolls Royce to come with this nickel plated, you know, it was known as the silver phantom of Hyderabad. Then in time, also people wanted they liked big cars. The most of the Maharajas liked big cars. They wanted to, they were not only carrying themselves, but their families. Then they would have footmen and the soul and people to accompany them. So they ordered these cars, which were called limousines. So many of the Maharajas ordered specifically limousines, where there was a division between the driver and the rear section. And you always had these little jump seats by which two more people could sit inside facing backwards. So there were cars of this kind. And these limousines, some of them again came fully covered with bodies. Despite the heat, etc., they came as completely covered cars with a full body. Why? Because those were Zanana cars, the cars for the women. Because most of the women at that time, not just uh, with uh, Muslim families, but also with Hindu families, uh, they traveled in seclusion. Either they had something covering their face, etc., and they had to be hidden from the men. And so how did you do that? by providing with a covered vehicle, a fully bodied vehicle with sometime even later on, they had tinted windows on them or they had screens or they had curtains by which they could not be seen. Now, whether they were boiling hot inside and whether they were getting boiled over is another matter, but I don't think there were no one's bothered about that. <laughs> then, of course, the third type of vehicles that came, which is very unique and which is unusual, were the hunting cars. So there were these cars which were designed in such a way that it could be used for hunting purposes. No, not very many Rolls Royces were subject to that because um, Rolls Royces were very, very big cars, usually, and were very heavy and luxurious. If you took them to the forest, and especially with soft soil and deep forest, they're too big to navigate through the trees, or they would easily get bogged down in soft soil. So, in fact, if at all, more, many of the hunting cars were not Rolls Royces, but a few Rolls Royces did get equipped. A famous one was the one from um, Bharatpur, which was a very short wheelbase car, a short car, so it was light. And there's a special body where on top there was an opening, a turret, so the so the Maharaja could stand on the top with his gun and keep shooting around at animal or people for the matter. And there was in fact a jump seat at the back. At the back of the vehicle, there was a seat facing backwards 
So there was this guy who would be sitting there, probably not the Maharaja himself, somebody more dispensable, who could sit there and aim at animals coming from behind. So in case the car got attacked from behind, there was this man with a gun sitting there to shoot at the animals from behind. So there were these strange, specific hunting cars, specifically for the Maharajas. A few such role choices were made. Gautam? Yes. Gautam, interestingly, I was reading the erstwhile Maharaja of Kota, Umed Singh too. He had this bright red and chrome Rolls Royce, which was customized with a machine gun to hunt tigers. And it had tall tires that were designed to cross rough terrain. And basically, you know, it was a huge vehicle to creep through mud and bush. Is that true? That I think is not true. It's unfortunately one of the many myths around in the world. Uh, that I think this machine gun and whatever has been done was done after the car left India. And um, Kota, yes, was very much into hunting. And Kota did have uh, hunting, made, might have had hunting cars. Uh, but I'm not, and whether this one was probably a hunting car, whether it was equipped with a machine gun is very, very doubtful. I mean, why would you, you would really need to, you need to be a bad marksman to use a machine gun. What I meant is if you're a good marksman, if you, if the people who are into hunting the Rajas, the Maharajas, if they were, they wanted to prove that they could kill an animal, then they would, they would do so with one shot, not with, not riddle it with bullets, so that you can't do anything with that animal anymore. I mean, the idea was what? To shoot the animal and to have him as, have him as a trophy, to put him up as a trophy, put the head up as a trophy, have a clean uh, skin, which can then be put on the floor and the rug. You know, it was just, that was the purpose. Now, if you had a machine gun and you shot, you know, 34 bullets went through an animal, I don't think there'll be much left for to show that animal anymore. So I'm, I'm afraid this is one of, unfortunately, this is one of many such rubbish that we hear and see around the world today. But that's, that's how it is. Interestingly, since we are talking about myths, Gautam, I have another one, which I'm sure a lot of people have heard of. And that is the story of Maharaja Jai Singh. It is said that he used his Rolls Royce as a garbage collection vehicle after he was insulted by a Rolls Royce salesman in London. Is that a true story? Or again, is it a myth? Honestly, there's just no evidence. There's no evidence at all to say that this has happened. There's no photograph, nothing. Now, the fact is that, as you know, as I mentioned, that every time a Rolls Royce was delivered or especially done for the Maharaja or anybody, it was immediately in the magazines, at least in the UK, or in the newspapers in India or everywhere. It was always, there were, these are things which grab headlines. And there is never been a single evidence seen of a car done this way, a Rolls Royce done this way. There have been other cars been used for clearing garbage or garbage vehicles, but those are, that was common. Were, earlier, you didn't have trucks, you had cars converted into pickups to clear, take garbage away. But a Rolls Royce, what we know, I know, and others have seen, we have never come across a single image of a Rolls Royce converted into garbage vehicle. So I'm afraid that this is another of those tall stories that keeps doing the rounds and um, people keep, keep repeating the same old um, myth. You know, it's, it's unfortunately so. Uh, I'm, I'm, I'm afraid it's not true at all. All right. Now, Gautam, do you see any cultural implications in the popularity of Rolls Royce with the Maharajas of India? Even if the numbers were not large, did it have an impact on the attitude of the Indians towards the Rolls Royce? Also, 
I mean, I've heard of the superstition that the Marwari community in India did not buy the Rolls Royce and they believed it bought bad luck. Now, you had earlier mentioned that the Marwaris were also buying the Rolls Royce. So, could you tell us more about this? The cultural implications is the fact that obviously Rolls Royce and princely India is something that's highly intertwined and they had an impact upon Indian society. Now, whether it's a good impact, bad impact is another matter because just because you bought the most expensive car does not mean you have the best tastes or for the matter that um, some of these cars were not necessarily done to the best of tastes. At the same time, there were cars which were done extremely well. There were also Maharajas and Rajas who had um, excellent tastes in not just uh, concerning cars, but other matters. A good example would be someone like the Maharaja of Indore, Yashwantra Holkar, who had excellent taste in art deco and was very much into art deco, art architecture and uh, art deco objects. And he also had his cars designed by specifically one person in a particular coach building firm called Gurney Nutting. And um, he worked with McNeil and John Blachely, who was the two designers at Gurney Nutting that he worked with closely. And some of the finest cars from that period, not just finest cars anywhere in the world, came from Gurney Nutting for the Maharaj of Indore. Now that in itself has a cultural impact because at the end of the day today, we can go back and say that these were great cars. These were some of the most iconic cars before the Second World War. And these cars are associated with India because there's this particular Maharaja who ordered them specifically, worked on the design with the designers, and they have these unique, let's say, features about them. So there are these other cultural impacts. Of course, the wider cultural impact of what automobiles did in terms of liberty, mobility, independence, that I don't think can be attributed to Rolls Royces because only 900 Rolls Royces couldn't have moved 250 million Indians. Uh, that would be probably more attributable to the more ordinary cars, to the Austin 7s and the Ford Model Ts and the Pair cars. That is, that has a probably greater cultural impact if you think of it. In a different way, the fact that um, some of the finest cars, in fact, some of the best Rolls Royces and some of the finest and the most tasteful cars were actually ordered not necessarily by the Maharajas. They were ordered mostly by these uh, doctors and lawyers and, uh, you know, the, the people in the cities of Calcutta and Bombay who were very educated, who had had a lot of exposure, who were probably very well aware of what was the latest in terms of technology. And they went ahead and ordered cars where uh, they were making a statement in terms of technology. And in that sense, there was another different kind of a cultural impact. The Marwaris, of course, also went and ordered. They were rich. They had uh, many of them were, you know, many of the Marwaris who came and were kind of uh, had businesses in Calcutta, which was that time the leading, um, you know, commercial capital of India after it ceased being the the so-called capital of India when it, the capital of India moved to Delhi in 1911. Since after that, Calcutta remained the commercial capital, and you had the Marwaris living in Calcutta who also ordered a bought Rolls Royce at that point of time. They bought because it was symbolic of wealth. It was something also, again, to probably please the British masters, etc., to impress them. They went bought Rolls Royces. This changed, of course, afterwards. What happened is that um, with India's independence, and then over a period of time, as the princely uh, purses were removed, the, the princely states 
stopped having the role as tax collectors, collecting from the people and passing it on to the British. That role was no more there. India became independent. You didn't need to have the uh, Rajas and the Maharajas collecting taxes on behalf of the Indian government because that the government could do directly from the people. And if at all, these were reduced to being just essentially landed gentry, if at all, owning palaces. With that, obviously, came economic decline. And with their economic decline, and with the private persons being taken away eventually, they obviously uh, could not anymore afford to have any fancier cars or any more Rolls Royces. Um, and what they started doing was to start selling the cars. And at some point of the time, these Rolls Royces, these old Rolls Royces that they were selling was almost a sort of a reflection of the decline. So later on, the Marwari families, etc., who had become wealthier post-independence, and when they went into buy, buy fancier cars, they were the let's the newer Maharajas, if, if you want to use the term, the newer Rajas and Maharajas of India, the newer business classes. They didn't buy a Rolls Royce because they saw Rolls Royce being synonymous with bad luck, as regards with this, you know, which which is why many of them shunned Rolls Royce. And for a period of time, Rolls had a uh, sort of a bad name in India, sort of a bad reputation, where it was seen synonymous with decline and decay and the end of the princely India. And so it was seen as a bad luck car. All right. Now, Gautam, could we talk a little bit more about why in the Indian post-independence era, hardly any new Rolls Royces were bought and imported in India. What were the reasons? Well, you have to remember that what happened is that till 1947, you could import a car into India. In, India was part of the British Empire. And of course, they did everything to export whatever was made in England to the Commonwealth countries, India being one of them. After independence, after 1951, when the new industrial act came into cognizance with uh, when um, Nehru was the prime minister or rather he became the prime minister in 1952 and they realized that in India if you have to have our own growth if you have to grow industrially we must have our own manufacturing facilities we must make things in-house instead of importing everything and so there was a new industrial act and that said that from 1954 onwards progressively the taxes on import of cars would go up and with the idea that by 1959 or so, there will be no more imports of cars allowed anymore. And Indians had to localize that they would encourage manufacturing where the, the parts were being made locally. And that's how Hindustan Motors and the Hindustan Ambassador, Premier Automobiles and the Fiat 1100 or Standard Motors with the Standard Herald came into being. And the cars which were being imported, and there were a lot of cars that were imported. 60, 70 different models were imported into India in the 19, early 1950s. All of that got stopped over a period of time. So a few Rolls Royces at that point of time did come in. But once import became completely, imports were not allowed from 1959. Of course, Rolls Royces were also like the same situation. They could not be imported any longer. And then the point was that some people could bring in cars. Either somebody could come and bring in a car in a transfer of residence. If there was somebody Indian who was abroad, who was coming back, you could bring a car and transfer residence. Or the embassies and the consulates and some multinational companies were allowed to also import some cars. Right. In that form, a few Rolls Royces did come in, but very few. People at that point of time saw these Rolls Royces as being bad luck. Rolls Royces' image was a bit, uh, you know, not necessarily the best in India anymore. And suddenly people were more keen on first the Chevrolet Impalas, 
and later on Mercedes Benzes. And Mercedes Benzes seemed to have a better image. And if at all, if there were people who were importing, let's say, prestige cars from abroad, there were more Mercedes Benzes and Rolls Royces. So this is what happened in, I would say, during the 60s and 70s and even into the 80s, where fewer and fewer Rolls Royces, if at all, got imported. And, um, and the cars that were the most desirable imports were mainly Mercedes Benzes and Peugeots. And that's how it was till, of course, the Indian economy opened up. In 2006, the government allowed the import of cars again, of course, with a very high level of duty. And at that point of time, again, Rolls-Royce officially came back and started selling cars again in import India as an imported car. Gautam, we're almost at the end of the podcast and I have one or two more questions. Now, how do you see people perceiving the Rolls-Royce today in India? Also, has there been any other car that has matched the image of Rolls-Royce in India? See, I'm not sure that a proper image study has been done in a while on these matters. But the fact is that after allowing the import of Rolls-Royce from 2006 onwards, where import of all cars were allowed, not just Rolls-Royces, because Rolls-Royces came in, then there's, you know, after that you had sports car brands. Bentley came in as a brand separately, and then there have been sports cars brand. In fact, Bentley came in, I think, before Rolls-Royce, if I'm not mistaken. And then brands like Lamborghini and Ferrari and Maserati are also imported, Aston Martin's imported. So there are a whole bunch of uh, top-end luxury cars which are imported. Now, the image of which is the top there is always a bit debatable. And that's something we'll have to figure out because uh, no study, not I'm not aware of any studies. Maybe some studies have been done and maybe they'll tell you better. But the fact that obviously there is still a substantial and significant demand for Rolls Royces in India means that obviously Rolls Royces image is right up there. Now, how does it compare with Bentley? I wouldn't be able to tell you. That I cannot, but it, of course, is very important. In a totally different you know, scheme of things, Lamborghini is a fantastic image in India. It obviously seems to be highly desirable for a lot of people, but then it's on the same market segment. There's a totally different market segment than Rolls-Royce. So this is something which um, I can't tell straight away, but I do believe that Rolls-Royce, in terms of becoming one of the most desirable brands or one of the most brands that people, if they have money and they want to say that, okay, look, I'm really wealthy and this is the ultimate car that I can afford to buy and I'll buy. And it seems to be Rolls-Royce. The cheapest Rolls-Royce is some, what, three crores or more, right? So yes, Rolls-Royce is very much back there, quite up there. Whether it's the most desirable brand in the country, I can't tell you because I think for that you need to do a study. And maybe I wouldn't be surprised if a brand like uh, Lamborghini beats Rolls-Royce for desirability. But even Lamborghinis are cheaper. The base Lamborghinis are cheaper. But then they're not in the same segment, of course. Gautam, do you think in the future, India can manufacture something like this? Uh, yes, yes, absolutely. Why not? I mean, the fact of the matter remains Rolls-Royce today. Rolls-Royce itself, as an example, it's hardly made in England because the engine, the powertrain comes from Germany. The body comes from another part of Europe, right? All they do actually do in England at the factory of Rolls-Royce is actually stitch the seats. Okay, so they really don't make the car there. The car is made from different bits and pieces from around the world, mainly Europe, very little in the UK, assembled in the UK, and then sold as an English brand. So that in itself is one myth about, you know, it being 
you know, some country being able to not being able to. So if tomorrow we find that it's getting too expensive to make the Rolls Royces in the UK, I imagine a situation where a lot of it is made in India. So to say that we can't make it is it's, it's, it's absolutely wrong. And the fact that in that case, do we make another Rolls Royce or do we make another car? In fact, if at all, sometimes to make a cheaper car, to make a Tata Nano, in terms of technological challenges, is probably much, much more so than to make a Rolls Royce. So I think to say that if we're going to say that tomorrow, if India can make a good car, an exceptional car, or one of the best cars in the world, it's very much possible. Honestly, that's the answer I was looking for. You see, if there is a will and a desire to do so, it should be possible. If you know now at the moment, the world's fastest cars, the most, the world's fastest accelerating cars, the most, most exciting car that's coming out in the world is from Slovakia. You see this car called Rimac, which is going to come, which is much more expensive than a Rolls Royce. Much, much more expensive than a Rolls Royce. It's coming from Slovakia. It's going to be the fastest car. No, they just, this one guy who had a vision and who come, came out with a, and who just first fiddled around with his BMW and putting electric engine into it, electric motor. And then he found how he could get more and more efficiency out of it. And today has become a technology leader. Porsche and others have signed up with him. Right. It's possible. So you have the same kind of vision out in India somebody had. So somebody says, okay, I want to make something that's exceptional. And the technology is changing so much that you could do something which is completely into the future, which has got nothing to do with the past. Rolls-Royce is an old-fashioned car now. And it's really old-fashioned, if you look at it. Today, everyone's into electric. Rolls is far from it. Right. So into electric, if you come out with something which is technologically absolutely brilliant and highly, highly innovative, why not? It could happen. Sure. And that could become the best car in the world. Gautam, is there a message that you would like to give to our listeners before I say goodbye? Just because... A car is most expensive doesn't mean it's the best. I think that's a very difficult and that's a, unfortunately one of those myths uh, that's been associated with Rolls Royce is the fact that it's the best car in the world, uh, which was just a marketing statement done in the teen years. And since then, there have been many, many, many much better cars. And I think um, to make a sweeping statement to assume that Rolls was the best car in the world, I think is is very unfair to a whole lot of other cars and engineers and designers who did much better job. Uh, that's all one can say. Of course, an image is one thing. And um, to change or to change that image or to break that image is very difficult. And so anyway, that's how it is. But yes, Rolls-Royce and India, it's a special history and, and will remain so, I guess, for decades to come. True. Thank you so much, Gautam. It was a pleasure talking to you once again. Thank you once again. Not really a pleasure. Bye. 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 Well, if you enjoyed this episode on the history of Rolls-Royce in India, then definitely like and share. And don't forget to subscribe to our channel. We are available on all major podcasting platforms, be it Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, Spotify, yeah, um, SoundCloud. So yes, subscribe to our channel and listen to all the latest episodes on the Indian podcast. This is Alicia. Bye-bye.